Father, we thank you that what we have heard from your word already tonight is utterly, eternally true. That you are a God who has compassion on sinners who repent. That you're faithful. That you're kind. You're merciful. You're good. And you will always have been. You are right now and you always will be. Thank you that no power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck us from the hand of the Lord. And Father, as we open your word again, I pray that you'd give us much grace, that your word would be proclaimed accurately and faithfully, and that your word would do what it is inspired of the Holy Spirit to do among us, and that is probe and correct to rebuke, to encourage where we need to encourage, to convict where we need conviction, and ultimately that the Lord Jesus Christ would be greatly glorified among us. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to be for a few more moments here in the Gospel of Luke in the 10th chapter. I heard a preacher say one time that preaching on Sunday nights is like cooking for people who like to eat. So to preach on a Monday night, the second go-round is just a whole other level. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, and in Luke chapter 10, we are going to find the parable that's often entitled the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I love that we get to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan right on the heels of the parable of the prodigal son, because there's actually a word that's used in both parables that I think the Lord, by his mercy, will enable us to, to tie together. Now, I know you're kind of cozy and comfy, perhaps, in your seat, but, but I want you to stand for just a moment. Just stand, and it's not, we're not going to embarrass anybody or make you do calisthenics or anything, any, anything like that. Just got one simple question. If you were born before 1990, I want you to sit down. If you're born before 1990, you can go in and have a seat. So, so who we got left here is those who were born in the year 1990 or after, right? So you're, you're 25 years old. So, so, so we, we have to share something with you. You missed something incredible. It was called the 1980s, and you missed it. You weren't there for it. It was the, sort of the pinnacle of Western civilization. So, so we have great compassion for you tonight, and, and you can be seated. And right in the middle of that awesome decade, the 80s, 1985, something incredible happened. There was a motion picture that was released that uh, did what few motion pictures do, and that was it, it obtained to the level of, of art, really. And, and one of the great thespians of our age by the name of Sylvester Stallone was the, the lead in this film called Rocky IV. How many of you have ever seen Rocky Part Four? All right. Some of you even born after 1990 have seen it, so that's, that's a good job by you and probably your parents. They let you in on, in on the secret there. So, so in 1985, November the 27th, if, if you run the historical date, November the 27th, 1985, Rocky IV was released. And, and I grew up in a house in the 80s with three boys. And so I don't, I've lost count the number of times that I've seen Rocky IV. And whenever it comes on, I can pick up and I know the, voc- so, so on and so forth. But at the very first scene of Rocky IV, uh, they set the stage for the entire film. Rocky was a, uh, one of the great boxers of all time. And, and the very first scene, these two boxing gloves are emerging from the ground. And the, uh, that great Rocky anthem, I was listening it on, uh, on my iPod on the treadmill today, Eye of the Tiger. I listen to that when I'm ready to quit. So, so the Eye of the Tiger is playing, and these boxing gloves are coming up from the ground, and they slowly begin to turn. And on this side of the screen, the boxing glove is turning, and it reveals the American flag. And on this side, the boxing glove turns, and it, does anybody know? What does it reveal? The 
Soviet flag, right? This is a this is the Cold War, 1985, and then and then the gloves turn in and uh, in uh, special effects that were around in 1985. You know, at least that's improved a little bit. They 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 come and they smash into each other, and there's this dramatic explosion, and it sets the stage for for uh, Rocky. He's going to fight the Soviet monster Ivan Drago. There's this tension that's building until there's an inevitable confrontation that takes place at the end of the film between one country's champion and another country's champion. In the Gospel of Luke, we're, we're jumping in in Luke chapter 10, there's been this tension that's been building. And, and, and it's between Jesus and a group of people we've already talked about tonight, Pharisees, scribes, their animosity towards Jesus. One of the first pictures we get of it is in Luke chapter 5. And, and in Luke 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath with a withered hand. And, and the Bible says the Pharisees were filled with fury. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, in Luke 5, he heals the paralytic. I jumped ahead a little bit. He heals the paralytic and says his sins were forgiven. And the Bible says the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's in Luke 6 that he heals the man on the Sabbath with a withered hand. And the Bible says, They, the same group, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The tension keeps building. In Luke 7, Jesus is eating at the home of a Pharisee when a woman enters the home weeping and kneels down at his feet and kisses his feet and anoints him with ointment. And the Bible says the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him for Jesus' sinner. Same thing that we see in Luke 15, right? Who is this that receives sinners and eats with them? In Luke 9.22, Jesus knows where all this is going. He says in Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised again. And, and as this tension's building, we find ourselves here in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, so far in Luke's gospel, most of their criticism of Jesus has been done behind the scenes. They, they've sort of been off on the, on the side, and they've kind of huddled up, and they're criticizing. And so in, in Luke 10, we get sort of our first public uh, confrontation between Jesus and, in this case, a, a lawyer, an expert in the law, one of their, one of the cream of the crop. And the Bible says here in Luke 10, 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what does the law say? How do you read it? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But that's not the end of the scene. The, the, the lawyer has to ask another question. And the lawyer asks, well, then, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells him the parable that we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and there he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And... As it were, a, a, a priest came by there. And when he saw the man, he, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, he came there. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, oftentimes when Jesus would tell these parables to the original audience, just as the parable of the prodigal son was, it, 
it is sort of unsettling, sort of shocking. Now, now we've already quoted it a couple of times, the parable of the good what? The good Samaritan. Those, those words to us just roll off the tongue. But I can assure you in, in Jesus' day to the original audience, two words they would never have put together would have been good and Samaritan. And the whole story twists here, but, but when a Samaritan came to the place where he was and he saw him, he had compassion and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and, and, and wine. And he took him and put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and he took care of them. And then the next day he got out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper and said, uh, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked the lawyer a simple question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we'll, we'll walk through this parable together, just as you saw Luke do with the parable of the prodigal son. Here in this parable, he gives a little bit of background and a little bit of a setup. Anytime we study the parables, it's very helpful to understand who the original audience is and, 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 and sort of the, the background to the parable itself being taught. It's a lawyer who stood up, and the Bible says that he has an agenda. Have you ever had somebody ask you a question, and you knew as they were asking you the question, they were actually asking something else? Uh, my, my wife sometimes will ask me, is that what you're planning to wear? Now, that's the question that she asks. When she asks me, is that what you're planning to wear, she's actually saying something else. She's actually saying, would you please go back and change your clothes? Sometimes a child will say to a parent, what's for dinner? Translation, at least in my house, can we please order pizza? You know, they, they're asking a question, but they really mean something else. Or a husband will ask a wife, what do you want for your birthday? The translation Well, he's actually asking you what it is that you want for your birthday. Now, a wife might say to her husband on her birthday, did someone else help you pick this out? Translation, I should have been more specific when he asked me what I wanted for my birthday, right? So so we've all been in the scenario where someone asks us a question. The, The Bible points out that this man, this lawyer, stood up to put him to the test. Same phrase from the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, you shall not put the Lord your God, what? to the test. So already we know this lawyer is, 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 he's uh, arrogant and and he, he doesn't quite know what he's stepping into. He's going to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The, the lawyer Uh, Jesus knows full well what kind of person he is. If we just look in our immediate context here in Luke chapter 10, look in verse 21. This is after the disciples who are not well educated like the, like the lawyer have come back from uh, preaching and proclaiming the gospel. It says in Luke 10, 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said, Blessed are the eyes that that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And then immediately Luke shifts the scene to someone who's wise and understanding. But he doesn't really have much wisdom or much understanding. Now, Jesus can handle any question that you put to him. 
Jesus is not in the heaven saying, well, I hope they don't ask me that. He's perfectly capable of answering any question that you have for him. And, and what ends up happening is this lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test as what we're going to see is Jesus just sort of reverses it and puts him to the test. Now, we need to have the humility to approach Jesus with honest questions, not as critical skeptics who've already determined the right answer before the question is even asked. The lawyer's question is a calculated question, and every question that's ever asked has a few assumptions behind it. So let's look at his question, and I, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll see pretty clearly he's got some major assumptions behind his question. Look at verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you already see some of the assumptions that he's got there, right? Uh, assumption number one is he addresses Jesus a certain way. He addresses Jesus as teacher. So, so assumption number one is he thinks that he's talking to Jesus sort of a, on an even playing field, so to speak. He, he, he assumes this is sort of like a, a, a debate, sort of like the political debate sometimes we see on television where the two of them on equal terms. It's the teacher of the law and the lawyer. But Jesus is, Jesus is a teacher, but he's so much more than a teacher. So, so he's got one assumption, and then we'll keep reading. He's got another assumption. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The entire question is, is couched in the first person pronoun, I. What, what shall I do? And, and, and then the entire question is based on the assumption that there is something you can do to inherit eternal life. That's a huge assumption, though, isn't it, Fritz? It's a huge assumption to say there's something that you or I can do in order to inherit eternal life. And actually, the question itself is a little bit um, uh, uh, strange because what do you do to get an inheritance? You know, when, when my father passed away, I got an inheritance from him. Do you know what I did to get the inheritance? I didn't do anything. I was his son. So, so even the, the thought, even in the lawyer's question, there's, a, there's, an inconsistent, there's an inconsistent thought. We'll talk about a little bit more in just a, just a moment. Jesus actually answers the question with a question. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as your Self. Now, we've already seen from the parable of the prodigal son, and we're going to see here that uh, the greatest obstacle a man or a woman can have to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is self-righteousness. The, the, the hardest person to come to faith in Christ is the person who doesn't think they need to be saved. We saw the self-righteousness of the older brother and the prodigal, and now, and now we see here, he, he says, uh, uh, and your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And kind of see his smirk get a little bit bigger, right? Now, notice what Jesus says, though. Do this, and you will live. Now, I have to tell you, the first couple of times that, that, that I read this as a, as a young man in the faith, I, I, uh, I, I honestly found Jesus's uh, answer to his his question a little bit unsatisfactory it's not quite what i thought jesus would say right i mean he says what shall i do to inherit eternal life and then he quotes the bible uh, the, the the lawyer gives the answer and he said to him you've answered correctly do this and you will live and uh, as we read it a couple more times we we realize that he has answered correctly but then here's the point 
Here's the point for, for the lawyer. Here's the point for you. Here's the point for me. None of us, none of us do this. We don't do this. And, and if, if we can hear what the Holy Spirit inspired a redeemed Pharisee to say, not only do we not do this, we, we cannot do this. Romans 8 teaches us this. Those who are in the flesh do not obey God's law. Indeed, they cannot. But the lawyer still thinks that he, he can. So uh, we, we learn a little bit more about the lawyer here when the Bible says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He says, I know I should love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul, all my strength and with all my mind and, and my neighbor as myself. But now let's, let's get a little bit more specific, Jesus, from the lawyer's uh, perspective. Who is my neighbor? And so it's in response to that second question that Jesus gives us what we call the parable of the prodigal son. But before we go here into the, into the parable, uh, Jesus brings the man, when he asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He immediately brings him to the law. Do we see that? He knows he's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. He's, he's got the, most likely the first five books of, uh, of the Bible memorized. He's an expert in the Mosaic law. And so Jesus takes him to what he knows. It's very interesting as you read the Bible, the different, um, the different approaches Jesus has to different people as he shares the gospel. It's always the same message. Salvation is by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. But just take John 3 and 4, for example. His approach to Nicodemus and then in John 3 and then his approach to the woman at the well in John 4 are totally different. Why? Because they're two totally different people. The same message, different approach. So here with the lawyer, he says, okay, well, this guy's a lawyer. Let's go to the, let's go to the law. He said, and what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he's actually got the right, he's actually got the right answer. But you know, it's a, it's a different thing to have the right answer and and, and the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. This guy's got the right answer. If it was a Jeopardy and it's a final Jeopardy and the category's the law, this guy could, could safely and comfortably in his own mind wager everything. He knows he's going to get the answer right. But he go, we have to ask this simple question, what's the point of the law? Now, uh, illustration I sometimes use in, in my church, what we, what we know is Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, here's the purpose of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is given to us so that we realize we need to be saved, and we can't do the saving. Amen? That's the, that's the purpose of the law. So, so an illustration that I sometimes use, a little bit silly, with our church family is the, the law, spiritually speaking, is the physical equivalent of saying, okay, if you want to be saved, you go to the, you go to the eastern coast of North Carolina, and you get in the Atlantic Ocean, and you start swimming. And, and you keep swimming, and you go down around the Horn of Africa, and you just keep swimming. And then you come up north uh, 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 and, and get to the Indian Ocean, and you just keep swimming. And then you reach the Pacific Ocean, and you keep swimming. And you keep going, and you keep going, and you go down to the southern tip of South America, and then you come back up, and you get back to the coast of North Carolina, and then that's how you could be saved. What would you say if I told you that's how to be saved? You would say, I can't do that. That's impossible. Do you know what the Pharisees said? Where are my swim trunks? The Pharisees, the Pharisees said, the Pharisees said, swim class, Wednesday night, 630. 
And then they came up with all these rules of how to apply sunscreen, of how to best do the breaststroke, how best to do the backstroke, and so on and so forth. That's, that, the, the whole point of the law is you don't do any of these things. And not only do you not do them, again, big picture, you can't do them. It's beyond your ability. And now here's this self-righteous lawyer got the right answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, okay, all right, now go do it. And you know what the, you know what the parable the Good Samaritan helps us see? He doesn't do it. And then in the end, he knows he doesn't do it. Well, let's read it to, together, the, the parable itself. Uh, there's some really helpful points for our lives. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So one of the things that we can take clearly from this parable is that Jesus illustrates that true love of a neighbor is rare and uncommon. This stands out prominently in Jesus' narrative. A traveler fell among thieves. Jesus was referring to a road that was sort of notorious in that day for situations and circumstances like this happening. And a priest comes on the scene. A priest, a religious man, a man of the faith. And he comes by, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then a Levite comes. Levites were not as high-ranking as priests, though they were certainly highly privileged in those days. Uh, the, the, the language of the text suggests a little bit that the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, that, that he paused perhaps for a moment, but then the same decision is made. He passes by on the other side. Now, very often in, in those days, Jesus is using a manner of teaching that, that uh, illustration one, illustration two, and then, and then, the, and then the catch there is, is C, uh, C, so to speak. Here's A, here's B, here's C. But I got to tell you again, they didn't see the C coming. The, the hero of the story, we won't go all into the background this evening, but this, this animosity between the Jew, Jewish people and the Samaritan people is generations old, and it's deep, and it's intense. You can go to John 4, for example, when Jesus is at the, speaking with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and, and she comes and she can't even believe he's talking to her. Remember, that's what she says. How are you, a Jewish man? Want a cup of water from me? If you're in Luke 10, just look over here to Luke 9. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to go to Jerusalem, he said his, or for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, I have to tell you, earlier in Luke 9, Jesus had told the disciples, if you go to a village and they don't receive you, shake the dust off of your feet and go on to the next village. That's what he told them to do look what they want to do. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Instead of shaking the dust off their feet, they wanted to, they wanted to make the people dust. He turned and rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. In other words, they did what he had actually said they should do. But, but I want you to notice James and John don't say statements like that in Jewish villages. They make that statement in a Samaritan village because of the animosity that exists. They think it would be fine for the Lord to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. 
by the way, not our purposes for this evening, but it's pretty exciting when you get to the book of Acts and you know who you start seeing saved in some pretty significant numbers are very likely the same sorts of people that James and John wanted fire to consume them and then the fire of the Holy Spirit is going to fall and uh, they'll be saved instead of being destroyed. And then we get over here to Luke 10. But a Samaritan... And it's not a stretch of the imagination to to suggest that when Jesus introduces the hero and the hero's a Samaritan, that people were just offended. Probably one of those (gasps) went up from the crowd. A who? A Samaritan? As he journeyed, came to where he was and had compassion. Uh, True love of neighbor is, is, is rare and it's uncommon. And I just want you to note from the text that the distinguishing contrast between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan is this word compassion. And you've already heard the word tonight. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? Felt compassion. Compassion is actually a pretty key word in the gospel of Luke. It's there in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. It's here in Luke chapter 10. And if you flip back to Luke chapter 7 and look with me in verse 11. Luke seven eleven. soon afterward he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him and as he drew near to the gate of the town behold a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her and when the Lord saw her here's our word he had compassion on her and he said to her do not weep and then he came up and touched the beer and the bearer stood still and he said young man I said to you arise and the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother fear seized them all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people and the report about him spread through the whole country through the whole of Judea rather and all the surrounding country so that's not all the uh, instances of the word compassion we could give you in the gospel of Luke but those are sufficient to make this point each time that someone has compassion they they do something the father saw his son and had compassion he ran and embraced him and kissed him and the the compassion led to action in the good samaritan story Uh, when, when he came to where he was he saw him and had compassion and went to him and bound up his wounds and poured on oil and wine and then he put him on his own animal do you see so the compassion led to action and here in in luke luke uh seven the compassion of jesus leads him to raise this child from the dead. You see, compassion always leads to action. Jesus looked on them, and he had compassion on them, for they were as sheep without a shepherd. Now, the, the great compassion of God led to the greatest act that's ever been done. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is an act of compassion. Now, um, we have to we have to ask ourselves here and let the scripture probe us a little bit is do you see it's impossible to say that you're a person of compassion and then you don't have any actions in your life to back that up we we see here that true love for our neighbor is rare the priest the levite they pass by on the other side compassion is what defines the samaritan and thankfully compassion is what defines 
is one of the defining characteristics, rather, of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The compassion always leads to, to action. So, so let's look at what the actions are. These aren't small things. So another point, other than it's compassion that leads to the Samaritan to get involved, Jesus illustrates who we should show compassion and kindness to and who it is we love as our neighbor. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion, he went to him, bound up his wounds. The Samaritan asks no questions. He offers no rational excuses. We're not told by the Levite and the priest. When they got there, they decided that they weren't going to do much of anything. Uh, But we do see here that the Samaritan does not judge how the man got in the predicament. He doesn't say, well, he should have known this is a bad, this is a rough place. He shouldn't have been down this way. He doesn't rationalize uh, an excuse for not getting involved. And we can be prone to rationalizing why we ought not to get involved in helping other people. A Christian ought to be ready to show kindness and brotherly love to everyone that's in need. Not merely our families and friends. We're to love all people to be kind to all people whenever the occasion requires. And then I want you to just see, we'll do this fairly, fairly quickly, um, the series of, the sequence of helpful things the Samaritan does. He went to him. That's a pretty simple phrase, but it's pretty weighty at the same time, isn't it? He, he went to him. It's not sufficient in our lives to wait for people to come to us. He takes the initiative. I ask you a simple question when it came to your salvation. Who took the initiative, you or God? God did. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, to quote the full scripture, uh, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he takes him. He went to him bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Those are costly um, things, oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. You you know that, that the Samaritan did not get up that morning thinking to himself, today I'm going to go help a man who fell. It's, it's totally interrupted his schedule. And that's another barrier that we've got, is, is helping people is not on my schedule today. Well, it might be on the Lord's schedule for you today. And then he brings him to the inn, <laughs> takes care of him, and then he gets out two denarii. That's two days' wages. That's not, you know, the loose change he's got. And gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, and wherever more you spend, I will repay when I... When I come come back, so he bound up his wounds. There's likely no way of doing that without it getting pretty messy. He poured on oil and wine. These are his personal possessions and are used at his own expense. I don't think he's looking to turn the receipts in. He's brought to an inn. He sets him on his own animal, so he walks to his own discomfort. Two denarii, two days' wages, again his own money, and there's no assurance he's going to be paid back. And then he promises to cover any additional expenses. So uh, now I I think many of us would be much more willing to help others if we knew it would not be messy, if we knew it would not 
require the use of our own personal possessions, if we knew it wouldn't bring us any discomfort, if we knew it wouldn't interrupt our schedule too terribly much, wouldn't cost us too much money, and could be easily, easily wrapped up with no expectation of further involvement. Now, under those conditions, you're not ever really going to be very helpful to, to anybody. Helping others and loving others and putting others first requires time and, yes, effort and trouble. Now, let's listen to the verbs. Just listen to the verbs from the text associated with the Samaritan. He came, he saw, had compassion, he went, he bound up, pouring oil wine. He went, he set, he brought, he took care, he took out to Denaria, he gave, he sang, repay, and then he says, I'm going to come back. Just that sequence of verbs, it sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? He came, he saw, he had compassion, he bound up, poured out, went, brought, took care, paid it in full, said, I'm coming back. One of my favorite authors is a, a, a guy who wrote over 150 someone. I'm not good with math, a long time ago, named J.C. Ryle. He said, the Christian should think it no misspent time to work as hard in doing good to those who need help as others work in trying to get money. He should not be ashamed to toil as much to make the misery of this world rather smaller as those who toil, who hunt or shoot all day long. He should have a ready ear for every tale of sorrow and a ready hand to help everyone in affliction so long as he has the power. Such brotherly love the world does not understand. The returns of gratitude which such love meets with maybe few and small, but to show such brotherly love is to walk in the steps of Christ. The world would be happier if there was more practical Christianity. Now, uh, I know it's a parable, and so, so they're not real-life people, but it is very much a real-life circumstance that the Jewish people and the Samaritans had such great animosity. So, so can you imagine the Jewish man when he's finally made well, the next time he hears a slur on the Samaritans, what, what do you think must go on in his heart and his mind? Uh, 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 he's been raised in a, in a place to say, the Samaritans over there, they're no good, they're dirty, they're filthy. And, and then for the rest of his life, he said, in the worst day of my life, a priest passed by on the other side, a Levite passed by on the other side. The only person who helped me was a Samaritan. And I've heard all my life such and such about Samaritans. And, and in our culture, there's a, a, there's a name, Christian, that a lot of people are going to say a lot of things about. You want to live your life in such a way that when people hear of the Christians, those bigoted, those narrow-minded, those not with it folks, those Christians, that, that you've loved somebody in your life in such a way that when they hear those sorts of things, they say, well, yeah, yeah, but, but I know, but uh, you know, I remember when I had the worst day of my life. The only person who showed up was Christian. Christian walked in. Christian's schedule was interrupted. Christian came and helped me. Who do you think of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, the priest didn't rob the man. Priest didn't beat the man. The Levite didn't rob the man. The Levite didn't leave the man. There, there, are, there are a few verbs here to the, to the thieves. They stripped him. They beat him. They departed, leaving him half dead. So the priest and the Levite did not strip him, and they did not rob him, but they did depart, and they did leave him half dead. Christians are, are called of the Lord to do more than just have a, 
neutral <laughs> effect on the world around us, right? I mean, it's not enough to say, I'm not harming anybody. I didn't beat up anybody. I didn't strip anybody. I not robbed anybody. Well, 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 the priest and the Levite didn't do that either, but what they did do is they passed by on the, the other side. Now, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And here's the rub for all of us. On our own, we don't, we don't do these things. We can't do these things. We need a law keeper to come for us to redeem us because we, we don't do any of these things. You say, this is just a story about that thing in there. And this is actually a story about us as well. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit still at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked. But even when you were dead, God being rich in mercy, does this happen in any of your lives? Raised us up with Christ. That's Ephesians 2, and I want you just to hear how this sort of line of thought of this redeemed Pharisee Paul, I love how the Holy Spirit inspired the redeemed Pharisee Paul to write these words, it's by grace you are saved. It's not by law keeping, you can't keep the law. For it's by grace you are saved through faith, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, here's 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Before we can ever love and serve others like the good Samaritan, we must first believe that when we were in our most desperate predicament possible, Christ at great expense to himself saw us, had compassion on us, and rescued us. And while it's certainly true that we can never obey the law without first coming alive spiritually to Christ, it's equally true that we cannot possibly come alive spiritually without desiring to, and then increasingly as we are sanctified, obeying the law of God supremely and loving our neighbor sacrificially. And then in conclusion, I think it's helpful, uh, 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 Luke, uh, of course under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, there's pitfalls for us at every turn. So, so this whole story concludes with, now you go and do likewise. And some of us are wired to be doers. We just want to get out and do, do things. And then, you know what? The very next scene is, is, is a scene of a consummate doer. Her name's Martha. And so we, we, go, we leave the scene, and Jesus says, you go and do likewise. And then he shows up, and here's a lady that's doing, 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 doing. But her doing is misappropriated. She's not listening to, to Jesus. And so Luke, and, and more than that, God's Continually bringing us back to this, to this point. We're, we're, uh, we're pitfalls every way. That's why it says it's a narrow way that leads to life. And he says here to, we haven't studied these this verses this night, but verse 41, I think it's helpful for us to get the full picture. The Lord answered her, verse 41, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So that's conclusion of balance. Instead of just go out and do, no, no, listen to what he said, do, and then, and then do what he said. That's the problem with Martha. She's doing a lot of things. She's distracted with much serving. And if we're not careful in our churches, we get to doing things, but we're actually not doing what he would have us to do. We're sort of doing our own thing. Well, 
lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? As we understand the full revelation of Scripture, here's a better question. Instead of standing up to put him to the test, in humility, come before him and ask, Savior, what have you done on my behalf that I would inherit eternal life? And I think Jesus has a pretty good answer for that, don't you? Here's what I've done. I've gone to the cross, paid your sin debt, was crucified. We sang it, gloriously raised on the third day to give you life. Now, now, let's go back to the law and talk about loving your neighbor and loving the Lord your God because it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not by works. No one may boast. That's what the lawyer wanted to do. He wanted to stand up and boast about what he'd done. And Jesus is giving him an opportunity to humble himself and repent and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this evening that we've been able to study the parables together, the word of God. And we thank you that for what we've seen is true. You're a compassionate father, merciful and tenderhearted. But also, if you would, by your mercy, put these two parables we've studied together and connect them, that your great compassion on us ought to lead us to have great compassion on, uh, in the lives of others. Those of us who've been saved by grace ought now to be very quick to extend grace to, to others, to sit down and eat and to bind up wounds, pour out oil and wine, take our possessions that you've richly blessed us with and leverage them that others might be helped and that others might be healed and that others might understand the grace of God that's been so richly poured out to us. Thank you for the churches that are worshiping you together this week. And I pray you'd use these parables Guard us from the temptation of the lawyer of just gaining more information tonight. Help us not to be hearers of the word only, but also doers accurately in accordance with your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.